This is Aviation Careers Podcast, an aviation podcast about living your dream and pursuing an exciting aviation career. Your host, Carl Valeri, has over a decade of experience counseling pilots. Aviation Careers Podcast will help you navigate towards your aviation career goal. Here is your host, Carl Valeri. Welcome to the Inspirational, Informational, and Transparent Aviation Careers Podcast. Joining me today is Russ Wazleski, co-host of the Stuck Mike Avcast. He's taken the next step in his aviation career and secured a job as a flight inspection pilot for a government agency. You know, Russ is a very experienced pilot, former air traffic controller, Air Force veteran, and an accomplished flight instructor. I'm really excited to hear about his new position as part of his aviation career journey. Uh, But before we get Russ on the show here, I have a couple things. Number one, if you're looking for one of those scholarships guides, we have them for free for those folks that pay it forward. AviationCareersPodcast.com slash free. There's over $120 million in scholarships in that guide, and it's growing every day. Uh, $120 million is what we counted about a year ago, so there's a lot more than that in there. If you're somebody that wants to help people get a scholarships guide, go to pay it forward aviationcareerspodcast.com slash pay it forward if you want to actually advertise on this podcast go ahead and give us an email feedback at aviationcareerspodcast.com and basically what we ask for is that you donate 50 scholarships guides and we uh, promote your product or service on this uh, on this podcast again you have a question you want to be on the show anything any feedback on this feedback at aviationcareerspodcast.com or any questions for our friend Russ. Well, Russ, uh, welcome to the show. This is so exciting to have you on here and talk a little bit about next step in your career. Yeah, Carl, I am super excited to kind of share this, you know, some some news, I guess, of, of this new job I'm going into, and and yeah, it's it's going to be exciting. Uh, I haven't gotten real far into it yet, but we'll, we'll definitely talk about that. And and I wanted uh, I wanted to say too that. Um, I thought, you know, I, I was ready to come on here and talk. Yeah, I've worked hard in aviation to get where I am and this kind of thing. And then I listened to your last episode with Julieta Vasquez. Oh my goodness, I got I got nothing on her. That that was an incredible story. <laughs> <laughs> incredible. Yeah, I really admire her a lot. Yeah, she she that's that's just wonderful and inspirational. So yeah, so if listeners haven't listened to that, go back and listen to three forty seven. Um, but but yeah, so I I have been uh, hired in a new position. Uh, it's for a unnamed large governmental aviation organization in the U.S. as an airspace system inspection pilot. Uh, you will hear these folks commonly on the radio uh, using the call sign flight check. So uh, they're out there. Uh, well, we'll talk about what they do in a minute. But I, I do want to say that my opinions and experiences, of course, are mine and do not reflect any policies or opinions of my employer or the U.S. government. And I'm here in off-duty time and not in any official capacity and don't represent my employer in any way. It's important. By the way, we talked about this in the last episode. It's important that you make sure that your social media presence, uh, you take good care with that. And that's kind of what Russ is doing. And that's what I do. I don't really mention who I work for and when I do. I have to make a disclaimer. Uh, with all that said, let's get into what uh, Russ is doing now. And I guess the best way to describe it is you're a flight inspection pilot. Now, uh, for a lot of us, we don't understand what that is. So what exactly is that? Yeah, so when I first say those words to folks that find out about that, that a lot of them are thinking of the examiner that you might go to for your check ride to be a private pilot or an instrument rating or something like that. That's, that's not it at all. Um, the, 
the flight inspection pilots are the folks that are out there certifying the nav aids, the ILS's flying approaches, looking at obstacles, checking out VORs and their signals and uh, range and and all those kind of typically instrument procedure related uh, certifications that allow all of us instrument pilots to be able to be safe and, and confident when we're in the clouds that everything is working properly. Uh, I, I will say I was just recently hired, as we'll get into, um, actually still in just basic aircraft training and haven't even started any of the actual flight inspection part of the job yet. So most of what I'm telling you is, is uh, you know, from what I know from previous experience and based on me talking to coworkers and such. So, uh, so but we can go through... And I want to go through what kind of the mission that will we do, the hiring process, the initial training, this type rating training, and then uh, hopefully at a, some future time I can come back on and talk about how the actual job is going and what I think of it. So, and that's, that's a great questions. And by the way, congratulations on your new job. I think that's awesome. Uh, get to do a lot more flying, what you've been wanting to do. Um, but it, let's kind of get very granular on this. Um, the actual flight inspection. Um, what is it? Why do you exist? I guess is a great question. Uh, and, and what do you exactly do? Well, I think one of the most obvious things would be you have an airport that you would like to get an approach into, you know, an instrument approach, right? So the approach procedure designers, the Terpsters as they're known, which is what I did previously to this job. Uh, they do all the design work and analysis of databases and, and runway locations and obstacles and that kind of stuff. But it's all based on data, right? Survey data and, uh, and databases and such. The next step in the process is it go, the proposed design goes over to flight inspection and flight inspection actually gets out there and flies it in good weather, obviously, <laughs> to make sure that the, uh, that everything looks like it's supposed to. Uh, there aren't any, hey, surprise, there's a new cell phone tower right on final that uh, no one knew about, you know, uh, that that all the all the data works and, and everything matches with what you're going to load into your GPS when you go fly it. So it's, it's, it's a super important job in that if there wasn't someone checking this, we wouldn't have that actual eyes on the airport environment, if you know what I mean. So... Uh, Someone's got to go out there and check that, make sure the paperwork matches reality, and that's the purpose of this job. So there's got to be a lot of approaches out there that you have to check. So, for instance, you go to one airport, there could be like there could be dozens of approaches. How do you have to check all of those? Uh, there is a periodic requirement to check those things. I don't know all the details of the app because I haven't gotten into that part of the training yet. But uh, yeah, if you have an airport with 12 approaches, well, at some point, all 12 of those approaches are going to have to be evaluated and then on, like I said, on a recurring basis as well. And you fly these, so what, is it like on a 172? What type of aircraft? No, okay, so there are a few different aircraft. Uh, many people uh, for decades now probably have seen the Learjets flying around, the Learjet 60s. Those are all but retired. Uh, we have, well, technically, I think it's three remaining at my, at my location anyway, but uh, only one. One is still flyable, and I don't think it's actually scheduled for any more missions. But uh, so those are those are all, like I said, all but retired. Primarily, what we're using is King Air three hundreds, uh, which is the uh, we'll we'll talk about the difference between the three uh, three hundred and the three fifty here in a little bit. But these are King Air three hundreds from the uh, late eighties that are you know they've got they only have the 
the two seats up front and then really only two seats in the back because there's a whole lot of avionics equipment on board, you know, equipment racks to receive the, you know, different signals and such where a technician is back there uh, looking at uh, oscilloscopes and whatnot. Uh, there's also a, there's several challenger 601, 604s, 605s that we fly. Uh, those are used for, uh, more non-conus locations, of course, you know, getting up and back to Alaska or Hawaii or a lot of the islands. I understand we have some international agreements with other countries to do some of their work. Plus those airplanes are shared with the air force who has obviously a requirement to do similar type of inspections that we do, but in places that are a little more hostile <laughs> to, uh, <laughs> to a, uh, to, a, I guess, to a civilian employee. So, they they have their crews that are all trained up, and as I understand it, we uh, we kind of mix and match too on some missions to keep them proficient as well. So we could be flying uh, right alongside them. So you wouldn't go into certain theaters that would be the the Air Force or whomever that would go into those theaters. Yeah, that that's one of the primary purposes of having them. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. absolutely. Yeah, that's interesting. So with with that said, how are you? So you're obviously. Well, I'm thinking you're. I shouldn't say obvious. You are on one specific aircraft, correct? Uh, I am right now. I mean, I, I've just got hired some, I trained on the King air, but a lot of the folks there are dual qualified in both the King air and the challenger and maintain their proficiency in both. Yeah. Wow. That's cool. Yeah. So you can actually have the opportunity to go fly the jet and also this, and that really mixes it up. So that 300, it kind of, you know, as you were saying this, it, it reminds me of, you know, when you see the videos of them doing flight tests of airplanes, you know, you have the pilots up there and all sorts of equipment in the back. Kind of kind of reminds me of some of those videos you see on YouTube where the you have all the, the flight test engineers in the back. Uh, you're doing kind of the same thing, but you're monitoring more the exterior of the airplane and, and the airport than you are the actual airplane parameters itself. Right. It's the, you know, for example, the ILS signal, you know, it's, it's stability and, uh, you know, if it's signal strength and if it's being blocked by any obstacles or anything's throwing it off, that's that kind of stuff is what the technician in the back is, is looking at and observing on his equipment. So obviously we're going to test the actual systems and, and make sure that the signals are correct, et cetera. So that it works for that one day. Um, but then it could actually uh, have problems later on. So that's why we have the, the system of the NOTAM system, et cetera. But how about like other interference, say uh, from radio frequency interference? Is that stuff that you would actually be testing for when you're when you're flying? And I'm I'm thinking obviously that's what it would is one of the things that's your criteria. Uh, I don't know yet. <laughs> can I can I fairly say that? But it does seem reasonable that if there is some interference along with it when we're doing the test, that that would be noted, right? So we're going to have you back on when you actually get flying yeah, in the airplane. Be, so let's talk great, a little yeah. bit about the the actual getting the job because sure. it sounds really cool. Well, you know what? Everybody I talked to leading up to this job as I was starting to apply and getting interested in such, every single person I talked to said, man, this job is the best job I've ever had, the best flying job I've ever had. Uh, because in the process of inspecting approaches and runways and all that kind of stuff. Well, you're not just flying from, you know, here to Seattle and whatever, and then flying back, you know, offloading passengers or something. You're flying around at 1500 feet AGL lower sometimes, you know, just, you know, cruising around at those kind of low altitudes doing maneuvers that, you know, almost might seem like kind of like flight training maneuvers in a way. And it's just, it seems, and from what I hear from others, it's, it's, uh, 
it's pretty interesting and pretty entertaining. Yeah, there's. Uh, I guess there's not a lot of time you're sitting straight and level. I guess moving the aircraft from the airport, the airport there would be, but, uh, but you're not sitting there for six hours straight and level, waiting until you get to the next waypoint, which is good. Um, but as far as the job is concerned, it sounds like a great job. Uh, it's. Uh, I'm assuming only open, well, you tell me, is it only open to government employees or, or can civilians also be hired? No, uh, typically when they advertise these positions, uh, there's actually two job applications or advertisements out there. One will be listed what's called external. So it means anybody in the public can apply. You know, I mean, you could apply and anybody can apply. Um, another, the, then this almost exact same ad will be listed again, but for internal use, which, uh, you know, people who currently work for the same agency, uh, which also includes, and this is important for, for all your, uh, military veterans out there, Military veterans can typically apply for internal offerings as well. So they have to, when they're on usajobs.gov, which we'll have a link to in the in the show notes, and they're searching for these things, make sure you check if you are a veteran. That check you are a veteran because it actually opens up some more opportunities. So this might be a good segue. Someone who doesn't want to become, say, a corporate or an airline pilot that can do something like this. Uh, there's other opportunities, obviously. Uh, but if you're in the military, thinking about uh, rotating out, something to look into. Yeah, and. And really, while while we're on that, I I was I've known about flight check for twenty five thirty years probably you know through my different jobs and I've kind of worked with them at points, but uh, I always just kind of assumed that the guys that did this were you know retired airline pilots or at least former airline pilots or military pilots, uh, and that was pretty much it you know but. And of course, we do have those. We have former airline pilots. We have former military pilots, certainly. But there's I'm a good friend of mine got hired over there a few years ago, and he was strictly general aviation. I mean, 100% general aviation time. And that's actually what got me thinking, hey, wait a minute. If he did it, why can't I, right? So so it's it's not uh, just military or, uh, or airline pilots or someone like that. Uh, We'll get a little bit more about you know kind of the mix of my kind of my hiring class here in a bit, but but uh, yeah, if it's something that you're interested in, anybody anybody can apply. There are obviously hiring minimums for that, uh, but but it's it's open. So, do you have any gouge for us as far as you know? Now that sounds interesting. That you know, someone here listening wants to apply. You know, what was it like? Uh, getting ready for this this interview process, you had to get I'm assuming get a resume together and all apply online. Uh, so what what's involved? So the application process, part of it is just like any other government job. If if any of your listeners have applied for government jobs, they'll recognize kind of the format, the resume, uh, the the website usajobs.gov, uh, and every ad there has a list of what things are required and. You know, resume, of course, is one of them, and it'll say certain details. You have to, you know, make sure you list these things. You know, your dates of employment, including your month, you know, at least to month level, uh, your pay, your responsibilities, that kind of stuff. It's very specific requirements, um, but that applies for any any job on usajobs.gov. This, since it's a flying position, requires a little bit more, and there's a few additional forms you have to fill out. One, as you can expect, with you know, all your flight time in various airplanes, uh, to some level of extreme detail. <laughs> so, 
uh, it does take a little bit of time. I mean, if the job closes out tomorrow, it might be hard to get your application in today, but uh, it might be possible. But there's a there's a lot of a lot of information that goes into there, in, into there uh, that's additional because it's a flying position. There are some hiring minimums. Uh, 1,500 hours is one of them. Uh, one of the requirements is 500 multi-engine hours, which can be in any size of multi-engine airplane. Um, and there are a few other requirements for night experience and s- instrument time. I think most people who have 1,500 hours, th- they seem pretty similar to the ATP minimums, except for the 500 multi-engine. Okay, so That's a lot of multi. It is, and it's actually what held me back for a while. Um, a few years ago, when my friend got hired, I started looking at my, you know, my numbers and I was way short on multi-engine time. So I got focused, you know, if you have a goal, well, if you want to get somewhere, it helps to have a goal that you can focus on. And, and for me, that was an easy one at 500 multi, not easy to get, but easy to focus on, right? 1500 hours. I already had well more than that, but 500 hours of multi-engine I needed. So I, well, one of the things I did was I started a multi-engine flight training business and leased a Seminole and did a bunch of training in that. And that led to opportunities with people who bought airplanes and needed to fly them or me serving as a pilot for them and, and that kind of thing. So great idea, by the way. Yeah, it worked out fantastic. And I was flying a ton, <laughs> but, but you know, I got, I finally met the requirements uh, last year sometime and just had to wait at that point for the next job application to open up, right? Back to the job applications, filled out all the paperwork, sent it in, and in typical government job fashion, uh, didn't hear anything for a few months. I mean, I got a confirmation that they received it, but that was about it, right? So a few months later, I got a uh, phone call saying, hey, they'd like to schedule me for an interview. Okay. Uh, the interview was an interesting process. It's uh, It seems to change from year to year. People I talked to that were currently there, like, they didn't do the same thing they did. It was all different, but, but so I can only talk about what happened to me. Uh, my interview was three components. Uh, all the applicants were actually brought in, uh, here to my location, uh, to do them to these interviews and it consisted of first was a, what they called a technical interview, which was, it was basically like knowledge test questions, I suppose. Uh, you know, I'm sure you're familiar with some of that kind of stuff from the airline. You know, what is this symbol on the chart? What does this mean? Can you do this? What are the rules on this? You know, uh, I didn't think it was it was that hard, I guess. Um, I do, of course, have the benefit of being involved in aviation my entire adult life. But, and, but most of the questions, if you didn't know it, you just didn't know it. I mean, there wasn't much figuring out. It wasn't like here... You know, come back in an hour when you've got this now you either knew it or didn't so uh but i guess i did decently on that uh then right after that i went in a on a simulator flight in the uh boeing uh, 737 simulator that we have okay and like the first part of the briefing was that of that was we don't expect you to be able to fly a 737 we know you're not qualified and have no training in a 737 but what they were looking for mostly, and they, they provided, you know, one of the interview guys ran the simulator and the other guy served as the co-pilot. All right. What they were just looking for was how, you know, aviation aware are you? I mean, if, if you're high or low, do you correct it? You know, do you, are you all over the sky or are you doing a reasonable job of keeping the airplane pointed where it's supposed to go? Are you calling for checklists at the appropriate time? Even if you don't know what the checklists 
are in that airplane, you know, there's probably a before landing checklist. So, hey, give me the before landing checklist, you know. Uh, and we did, uh, I think we did a couple of approaches and an engine failure on one of them. And, and I didn't flip the airplane upside down, so I guess I did okay. <laughs> I, actually, Carl, it was a whole lot of fun. Well, I, at least for me, there, there wasn't really much, I, I guess, pressure, you'd say, because... I don't know how to fly a 737 and they know I don't. So, you know, as long as I don't crash, I think I'm okay. Yeah. You just don't want to mess up too bad, right? You want to look reasonably competent, I suppose. Uh, and so after that, then there was a panel interview, which is kind of the typical job interview kind of thing where there was three of the managers from various locations. Oh yeah. We'll talk about lo different locations here in a minute. They just asked, I think about 22 questions and had, I had 50 minutes total. Uh, for the interview, so pretty long. Uh, and there was this assortment of, you know, tell us about a time when you blah, blah, blah questions like you'd expect. There were some yes or no questions, which were really quick, like, have you had any violations? And then then a series of kind of miscellaneous questions like, you know, are, are you willing to move? You know, which locations would you prefer? That kind of stuff. Uh, tell about us about your experience in different airplanes. That was, uh, so I think I was pretty comfortable in that. I mean, obviously haven't been hired. I, I did okay. But uh, some of your standard interview prep uh, ideas would help here. You know, it, you have to be prepared when you go in. You have sample questions to someone asking me, your wife or spouse or friend or whatever. You know, tell us about a time when you, you know, saved the uh, airplane from certain destruction or I don't know, whatever, you know. Uh, now there was there was one about disagreement with a you know with the captain of the airplane and how you would handle it or if you had one how would you handle it you know just this kind of CRM stuff was in there I, th I thought it was a, a pretty fair interview you know it wasn't anything too surprising you know on, on the side note there that you know that's kind of what I do on my days off I help people prepare for interviews and all those questions by the way eighty percent of them are the same. Uh, at from airline to airline it's i mean there's just some airline specific stuff like why do you want to work for xyz you know those are more personnel but 80 percent of these questions are all gonna be the same you know what would you do if the captain showed up drunk well you know those kind of things you know tell me about a time you know that those are very similar so any of those preps are good online uh, and like you said get someone that that's done interviews before and just listen to you yeah one of the questions uh it wasn't actually really even a question. I think it was more of a making sure the applicant knew this. <laughs> it was more of a statement in the form of a question. It was just that this job isn't a hundred percent flying. You know, I, you know, I I've done some corporate flying type work, and you show up at the airplane. You know, you're flight planning. You show up at the airplane. You go fly, and then you get done, and you're done, right? Um, in this job, there is some some desk work and reviewing of these uh, procedures and uh, setting up an itinerary and figuring out the best way to get from A to B and meanwhile stopping at C, D, and E airports to do whatever. Uh, so there is some significant uh, paperwork and desk work that you have to do, and they kind of wanted to make sure you knew that and you were comfortable with that, which is, which is important because I guess they've had some people come into this job, you know, that expected just to be flying and as soon as the airplane shut down you're done which is not quite the case so those are cool interview questions there's so many things we could talk about we could do hours just talking about interview questions um but do you have any idea like what what they're looking for in an applicant i mean is there any way you can you speak towards that or no i, I really can't but what i can say is uh you know, i talked about the i always thought it was ex-military airline guys um but but 
in my uh, hiring class, I guess you'd call it, uh, there were six people total, including me. Uh, and I know briefly, you know, a little bit about their backgrounds. One was a uh, military pilot, a uh, C-130 pilot. Uh, one uh, had various uh, flight jobs for their you know, whole career, but the most recent one was uh, in the Forest Service doing like uh, firefighting work. Uh, pretty interesting. <laughs> um, one was mostly a GA, but also was an engineer for an aerospace manufacturer doing some like avionics test flying type of stuff. So that kind of fits with what you'd think, right? Uh, myself, my experience is all general aviation, but I do have the procedure design background. Uh, I think one guy was, I did, I don't know the other two quite as well. One was a, a Navy pilot, I think. I'm not sure of the background of the other guy. So it seems to me, okay, that having something interesting, I guess, <laughs> in your background helps. Um, now, I don't know if that's 100% true, but certainly the at least the, the four or five people that, that I've met as new hires had something a little bit unusual, you know, a little bit different or uh, that made them stand out, I guess, maybe. But again, I'm not the hiring official. I don't know for sure. Yeah, certain missions are, are very unique, and that would bring something to your interview. It's cool that there are so many people in, in varied backgrounds. Uh, hey, Russ, I don't know uh, if you don't mind. Let's let's switch gears a little bit. I forgot to tell the audience this, but we're doing something new with this one episode. Uh, we've actually invited some people to listen in in the audience, and uh, they're listening in, and they can actually write in. So, by the way, if you want to be a part of the audience, feedback at aviationcareerspodcast.com. We actually uh, don't actually have you on to speak, but you can actually view this. So we let up to like two or three people in the audience. Uh, but today I got a couple questions. So hopefully uh, we may have touched on some of these, but I'll, I'll ask them anyway. Uh, one is, uh, it comes in and says, what is the initial training like? I think we talked a little bit about that. Just yeah, a, but I can certainly go into more detail. And that, that's, that's, a, uh, that's not a quick question. So that's okay, but we'll, we'll get to it because I want to talk about it anyway. And it's a good opportunity. Typical government job in processing seems to take a while, <laughs> you know, getting, getting all the, the security paperwork and documentation. And I mean, even before I was hired, it's a, it's a drug testing required position. So I had to go get a drug test and I had to get a, a first class medical and there's a bunch of other little things, right? So I got that all done. There was no problems. And then, then got to work. And the first thing real before you can even really start doing any of the flying, you need to be qualified on the airplane, right? I mean, we're going to do many things with the airplane that aren't just flying from A to B, but we learn about those later. Okay. The first thing is get qualified on the airplane. And that's all done in simulators down at, uh, commercial simulator providers, uh, training providers, right? So the, the King Air 300, uh, is a type rating required aircraft because it does weigh more than 12,500 pounds. And it's kind of a, a bit of an oddity because the King Air 300, they didn't make a whole lot of back in the late 80s or so until they started making the King Air 350 model. And and that's what everybody knows and all the you know King Air 350s are all over the place. Everybody flies them. Well, that's what the simulator is based around is the King Air 350. So we go down and get qualified in the 350. Fortunately, the type rating is the same. Okay. It's, it's the same type rating, you know, just like some of the uh, Airbuses and of course the Learjets and the Citations, um, you know, the 300 and the 350 both fall under the same type rating. So you go down to get the, uh, the type rating of 350, uh, down 
down in the simulator. And that training was good. Uh, there were, <laughs> for me specifically, there were some delays because the, uh, the day before, literally the day before my check ride, the examiner came down with COVID. So yeah, so I came home and we just delayed everything a couple weeks and it went back there and, and, uh, finished it up, did a kind of refresher flight and then uh, did the check ride the next day. But what they were able to do was have one of the other new hires I was paired with. So my simulator partner down there was one of the other new hires from a different location. We'll talk about the locations in a minute, but, uh, so we got to know each other pretty well, which is kind of nice. And we'll be working with each other potentially in the future too. So it was two weeks long, 13 training days, I think it is. Uh, pretty typical for the King Air uh, at various locations, I think. Uh, lots of instrument approaches, you know, dozens of instrument approaches, single engine approaches, you know, everything you'd expect in the simulator, engine failures and equipment failures and electrical issues and that kind of stuff. I thought it was pretty pretty reasonable how they, you know, there it wasn't, you had an engine fire and an electrical failure and, you know, a wing falling off and landing gear, hydraulic problem, you know, all at the same time. Uh, you probably get that kind of stuff, Carl, but, uh, <laughs> it, it, not the wing falling off, <laughs> not the wing falling off part, <laughs> but, but the, you know, there were some combination type emergencies, but not a whole lot, but it was, I thought it was pretty reasonable. And, uh, they expose you to, performance on, you know, cold days and hot days. We did a pretty interesting day. I thought a uh, hot weather day where they positioned us down at Tucson international, which is not real high elevation, 2000 something feet. I forget, but the uh, instructor just kind of gradually kept increasing the temperature from 40 degrees Celsius to start ultimately up to 50 degrees Celsius, which is of course really, I mean, that's just blazing hot day and the high density altitudes. And of course we had engine failures right at, V1, right? Uh, for those who aren't aware, V1 is your decision speed on takeoff where you decide whether well, I'm going to take it in the air if I have a problem or if I'm going to you know, stop it on the ground. After that speed, you're going to take it into the air almost regardless of what the, the problem is. So, But with the hot weather and high density altitude, the performance, even after getting the engine feathered and doing everything correct, the climb performance was 50 feet a minute. Oof. 50 Ouch. feet. So there were simulated cars driving along the road, you know, in front of the, yeah, it was great. But, uh, so we got to experience wind shear and traffic alerts and terrain warnings and engine failures and single engine approaches, single engine go arounds, airplanes pulling out onto the runway ahead of us on landing and have to go over them, all that kind of good stuff. So when you do this training, does, does that mean now you have your type rating once you're done with the sim, right? Yes, that's correct. So I do have my type rating now. I have zero time in the airplane yet. Still waiting on that. Starts next week, but uh, yeah, just because of scheduling and such of of, uh, air, of airplanes and the fact that this uh, you know I got delayed for a couple weeks due to COVID. But uh, so I am type rated in the airplane, uh, and that's great. But remember, I said we did the training in the King Air 350 model. The 300 is different. Uh, it's not real different. I mean, it's it's shorter. Uh, it's got different speeds slightly different. Every speed is a knot or two different, you know, the best climb speed and, you know, the gear speed and all those kind of speeds. They're all just a few knots different. You got to kind of you know, f brain flush the, <laughs> the 350 stuff and try to remember the 300 stuff now. Right. But the first thing I will do actually starting next week is go, we'll do a day of academics, I think. And then, and then a couple days of flying in the 300 for differences training. 
So do that in a real airplane, get some real experience there. And then after that, I go to some uh, OJT type training, you know, we're just academics and then flying an airplane, doing some checks of airports and approaches and learning how to learning how to be a and basically an SIC for that kind of function, right? So uh, that'll be a few days there, and then I'll be released to go out on actual itineraries, which will be which I'm really looking forward to. It'll be a lot of fun. So you said something there, differences training, and you hear mm-hmm. about that a lot at the airlines yeah. or anything that's a, you know, so that's something that's required, the differences between the 300 and 350. You mm-hmm. also mentioned something else about SIC training. Um, so could you give us a feeling how many people are in this crew? I know it's, I'm assuming two pilots, and there's some more people in the back. Yeah, so I use the SIC term kind of loosely there. I mean, I I am PIC qualified. The type rating is a PIC type rating, but you know, there's there's two there's a pilot and a co-pilot on all these flights, and you know, I don't know any I don't know anything about the <laughs> the mission type work, so I'll be kind of the helper, right? Uh, there's a pilot and co-pilot, and then there's a technician in the back for for most flights. Sometimes there isn't, depending on what we're actually trying to accomplish. But as a technician in the back, who is who has computers back there and screens and is looking at the, uh, the radio signals from, you know, the navs, the ILS and VORs and such, and determine if they're within their various parameters and such. And so, uh, they on a lot of the flights become the most important person there. We're just kind of driving the bus around to where they need to be. Right. And I was going to say now, you know, understand the rest of the crew, there's a whole bunch of other people that can be trained to be in this aircraft. How do they get the job? You know, how do they apply for this job? The guy in the back, he, yeah, the technician, he, he applies for the same, you know, usajobs.gov, uh, same process. Uh, it's not a uh, pilot position, so they don't have the, you know, flight time type requirements. But uh, that, yeah, I, I, I don't know a whole lot about the application process or, or what they're looking for there. But I do know that some of the people I've met, you know, they, you would think they would have all been, you know, like backseaters or something in the military or, you know, flight engineers or something like that. But it's not true. Have they told you what bases you're gonna that are available? Or sure, there's uh, five. I'm trying to open the sixth. I think uh, there's the Sacramento base, Oklahoma City, Battle Creek, Michigan, Atlantic City, New Jersey, and Atlanta, Georgia. Now, I, I mean, everybody here knows I'm from Oklahoma, and so the guy told them right away, "Hey, I want the Oklahoma City <laughs> location." You know, I, I, I would. I'm not gonna move. So. Uh, so it worked out, but yeah, so kind of all across the country and, uh, some of the, uh, uh, other trainees are well, actually, I'm the only one from Oklahoma city. All the other, uh, new hires were for different locations. Did they tell you what your schedule will be like, or give me an idea? Yeah. So, um, the general idea is about, uh, kind of two weeks on and then one week off. Okay. But I need to explain that a little bit more. Okay. Because on generally the, uh, missions, there'll be a three or four day trip. Okay. So you'll leave from your home base on, you know, maybe Monday's a planning day, right? So you'll leave on Tuesday, Tuesday morning and you'll fly up. We kind of handle you know, with these different offices, the, you know, the region that the office is in more or less. So, you know, from here you might fly up, do some checks up in Kansas, do a couple in Nebraska, end up there, stop there for the evening, right? Then next day, do some in Nebraska, end up in South Dakota or whatever. And then, you know, work your way back, maybe getting back, you know, Friday or even Thursday night if everything goes well. And then weekends are generally off. There's an exception I'll talk about in a minute. 
And then uh, the next week, kind of do the same thing. And then the following week, maybe ha- just have completely off for you know mission planning or you know writing reports or getting your doctor's appointments and that kind of stuff. The uh, the big exception to all this is, I guess there's two. One is kind of last minute things. You know, an ILS somewhere went down and they just brought it back up. And we need to go check out. You know, kind of a special kind of thing. And the other would be flight checks. You know, flight check can occupy a lot of airspace, <laughs> you know, for a while and, and interfere with air traffic potentially. So if you're half, there's something needs to be done at DFW or JFK or, you know, wherever, you know, probably the middle of the day is not the best time, you know? So if it's something that can be done at night an ops, a check for obstacles couldn't really be done at night, but if it's something that can be done at night, it'll be done at, you know, midnight or two in the morning or something like that when there's not a whole lot of traffic at those, well, those I, places. I've been in some of those places at two in the morning and they can be really busy. <laughs> sure. Well, they, well, and that, that stuff is obviously all, all coordinated with ATC too. So, you know, certain days of the week, you know, at, at 2 a.m. might be better than other days and, 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 you know, weekends might be better. But, uh, so that, that's the exception to the kind of the schedule there. A, a lot of the people that are listening are probably looking at the airlines. They've heard this term commutable and commutability. Mm-hmm. Is this a type of job you could live somewhere else and, and be commutable, which I guess we have to define that. Some people would fly from another location, maybe be able to drive very far away. We do a lot of work from home, especially I mean, since COVID started and after COVID. The, uh, the ability to work from home has been greatly expanded. Obviously not the flying part can't be done at home, of course, but, uh, but the mission planning and the review and doing the write-ups and all that kind of stuff, that can be done at home. So we do have people that live, I don't know if we have anybody who flies in, I mean, there might be one, but, but within a few hours driving, we have people that live a few hours away driving distance. You know, so I mean, that's not commutable, maybe in the same sense as an airline job exactly, but you don't, it's not like an office job where you really don't want to live more than an hour away. You know, you, you could live a few hours away and then you drive in on whatever Monday evening, do your flight Tuesday through Friday, Friday, and then drive home on Friday night. Maybe a lot of these people that work for the airlines, I guess, think that commutable meaning they can live on San Francisco and work in Atlantic city. That might be a little tough. I would think. Yeah, well, because I mean, you'd have to well, you'd have to pay your own airline ticket. <laughs> yeah, there's no uh, there's no provision to for that, so that would be challenging. Yeah, that's pretty interesting. Well, gosh, that you know, I think that's all the questions we got from our audience here. And by the way, if you're interested in me and part of the audience, feedback at aviationcareerspodcast.com. It's something we're experimenting with, so we're just inviting one or two people on at a time. Uh, so that and that's really been great. This feedback that we've gotten from the audience. Uh, anything else, Russ, that you can think of before we kind of close this out? As far as I, I think we've gone over most of the points we wanted to talk about. Anything else you want to talk about about the job, or or just in general? Um, tell us why you're excited about it. Well, I, I, I think it, it's going to be an interesting job. I certainly hope it works out that way. Uh, just the, the variety and the, not just flying point A to B, you know, if it's some, if, if you're someone who has kind of gotten tired of just flying A to B and, you know, autopilot on for, you know, three, four hours at 30,000 feet, then, uh, you know, maybe this is, this, this is a welcome change. I think, uh, for me, it's, it's definitely a step up from what I've been doing. So that's exciting. I mean, it's always exciting when you get to advance your, your career and move up. Uh, I don't, 
see it so much as a, I, I wouldn't look at it as a good job for you know time building or something like that. I don't think, I mean, number one, the, the hours we put in, you can get more hours in, in an airline job or, or many other jobs. How many hours do you actually fly, you think? Uh, I, I hear numbers around the 400 to 500 a year range. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, you know, it's not eight or 900 or anything like that, but you know, it's, 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 it's good, but it's, it's not, you know, thousand hours a year. Uh, plus you have to have some experience to get this job anyway. Okay. So this, this is not necessarily a, you know, a job that's going to work for, you know, a, a new pilot or something necessarily, because you do have to have some, some experience to get this job. But if someone's looking for a change from what they've been doing, I think it's probably a pretty good option. Absolutely. I mean, it, it sounds like a great job. It's a government job, same as, you know, great pension, those type of things. So we've talked about those type of jobs. One thing we do want to do is, and I know from the audience we've got, says congrats on the new opportunity, Russ, and look forward to the next interview where you're going to talk more about uh, the actual flying the airplane and, and answer some of these other questions that we had, you know, get a, a better feel for what this would be like. But it's actually very interesting. A lot of people you talk to say, wow, that would be really cool to do something like that. Uh, and you can see the impact it has on on the flying community, on the traveling public, because you're doing something that really is adding to the safety and the safety margins within the system. And I think that's something, hats off to, to those folks that go out there and fly the flight check for us. So uh, again, congratulations, Russ. Well, thanks, Carl. And I don't know if this was like a good luck charm or something, but no kidding, the day I got the job, the offer, the day I got the phone call saying, hey, would you like, are you still interested? Would you like this job? I was wearing one of your Aviation Careers Podcast that's, t-shirts. That's what it is. <laughs> so, that's what it is. I, hey, if you, I guess if you want a flying job, you got to get some t-shirts. But. <laughs> yeah, by the way, they're coming soon. People have been asking about that. I haven't talked about it, but you will be able to order some of those t-shirts that tell you to take one step today toward your career goal. And speaking of which, uh, Russ, uh, what's next? So next is the airplane checkout, uh, doing your OE, IOE, how do they call that? Yeah, it, I, it's not exactly those terms, but that's kind of the idea. I mean, I'll be with a more experienced uh you know pilot slash instructor for a little while i guess but uh yeah then it's the, the entire training program you know it's a couple years long uh to get completely checked out on every possible uh inspection that we can do and be uh, promoted to a uh you know, pilot command so i'm looking forward to to that but it's it's a bit of ways i gotta get in the airplane first awesome <laughs> yeah well, I can't wait to hear more about it. And don't forget to listen to Stuck Mike Avcast. We have a few more episodes coming out about general aviation and general aviation flying for those uh, that are interested in that. Uh, and also, we really appreciate uh, Russ coming here. And if you're interested in anything that Russ has talked about, feedback at aviationcurrispodcast.com. Just ask us. He's more than willing to help out. Again, Russ, thanks for being on. You bet, Carl. Uh, and you know, just like the back of your shirt says, I really want to stress to uh to all the listeners out there that you gotta take a step every day you know if, to achieve your goals you gotta do something every single day just a little thing whatever uh if it's the same like if you're building an airplane you know the, and you ever read about people building kid airplanes they say you gotta do something every single day or it'll fall way behind their goal just a little something every day take a step watch a video look at usa jobs figure out how to navigate the site whatever just do something and you'll get there Awesome. Well said. I mean, I, I can't say it much better than that. I do appreciate everybody listening. And again, if you want to be part of the audience, feedback at aviationcareerspodcast.com. 
Com. Also, if you're looking at one of those scholarships, guys, and everybody's been asking me about it, we've been uh, giving quite a few away. Uh, you can go to aviationcareerspodcast.com slash free to get yours for free. It's really inexpensive, $10 for one-year access. You can get it both on Amazon, the Apple Bookstore, and also you can get it online here at aviationcareerspodcast.com slash scholarships. Uh, that'll help you move forward towards your career goal and also enable you to get ratings or actually work towards a rating, not necessarily towards a career even. But uh, most importantly, though, after you're done with this podcast, I want you to take Russ's advice. Make sure that you don't stop. Don't stop now. I want you to take action and take one step today to move forward in your career and in your life. We'll talk to you next episode. Safe flying out there. You have been listening to Aviation Careers Podcast, an aviation podcast about living your dream and pursuing an exciting aviation career. This aviation podcast is produced by the Valeri Aviation Corporation. Although host or guests may receive compensation for products and services discussed in this podcast, compensation never influences our opinion. Before purchasing any product or service, you should always do your own research. 